sure I don't trip on this. Let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each of the women that you brought here. I thank you for your word and what we learn in it. I thank you for nothing but the blood of Jesus, that we, we are fallen and we are lost, but you have provided redemption. You provided a savior, and we praise you for that. And ask that you'd be with us today as we study your word, that we would be changed by your word, we would be hearers and doers of the word, and that we would love you and love it more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have a lot to cover today. There is a lot in Genesis 3. And so we're going to dive right in with our review. If you remember last week, we were looking at Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, and all that God accomplished in creation. And we saw the kingdom of God. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm not very good with mics, but I'm trying to get it so that that doesn't do that. There we go. We saw the kingdom of God jumping off the pages of scripture, right? We saw, remember, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so we saw Adam and Eve, God's people, as the pinnacle of creation, the only ones made in the image of God. And then we saw God's place, the Garden of Eden, paradise. Remember, Eden means paradise. And I learned today, even as I was studying this week, I learned more about Eden and that it was really set up to be the capital of the world. In the ancient world, even today, we find cities um, created around water sources, right? Without water, there isn't life. And the water, remember, flowed down from Eden and then divided into multiple rivers. And so we see the first dwelling of man in the first city set up there. It was supposed to be the capital of the world. So we saw Eden, God's place, which was paradise. And then we saw God's rule and blessing, right? God has set Adam up as his co-regent, as remember we said, the lowercase k king to rule over creation. But we also said that God, remember, no one has sovereignty over God and that he was showing that he was still in authority by his command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he was still ruling through his good word. He was still ruling through his command. And this command is an opportunity for them to obey. We can often think of Adam and Eve, and not intentionally, but unintentionally, take our fallen mindset and put it on them pre-fall and think, oh, it was a big temptation. Or they weren't tempted because they didn't have a sin nature. It was an opportunity for them to obey and to obey God and to acknowledge his authority and his sovereignty over all. And then we talked about God's character. Remember, we talked about what we learned about him in creation. And we talked about his word, how God created with his word. And I wanted to talk just a little bit more about that this morning as we were reviewing. Why did God create with the word? He could have thought everything into existence, right? And we talked about how it showed his power. But it's also establishing a theology of the word of God. It's the beginnings of a theology of God's word. And we're going to see this picked up throughout. So just... I'm trying to give you things to start looking for as you're studying. So as we study scripture going forward, note the emphasis and the importance of God's word throughout all of scripture and through how he covenants with his people and through the law as we get there. But he's starting a theology of his word and the power of his word and his speaking. It's so significant that early Jewish readers and scribes would translate the word of the God, the, the word of God this way. They would write the word of the Lord. That is the Messiah. The word of the Lord, that is the Messiah. That's how significant they understood the word of God to be. And we see this really clearly in Psalm 34, verses 4 through 12, which talks about how God creates, but also puts an emphasis on his word. So listen as I read and note words like command, counsel, and word as I read. Psalm 34, sorry, 33. 
For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsels of the Lord stand forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his heritage. So we see that this is a theology of God's word. And then there's something I want to point out that we didn't talk about last week, but it's a term called corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. And this is going to be really important for us as we go into the lesson and even as we, again, study scripture. What is corporate solidarity? Corporate solidarity is what happens to the one happens to the many. What happens to the one happens to the many. And a few examples of this would be the sacrificial system, right? You sacrifice an animal, then it atones for your sin. So the sacrifice of one has blessing for many. You make a sacrifice for your family. Sometimes there were sacrifices done for the whole nation of Israel. We see this with David and Goliath. Remember, Goliath fought for the Philistines. David fought for Israel. If Goliath won, who won? The Philistines. If David won, who by default won? Israel. So the whole army's in an engage. Whoever won that battle, their army won. That's what happens to the one, happens to the many. And we're going to see it in today's lesson in Adam. We're going to see it in Adam, and we also are going to see it in Jesus, in the Messiah later. What happens to the one is going to happen to the many. And we ended our lesson looking at creation at the seventh day, right? The goal and purpose of creation was rest. If you noticed last week, we didn't talk about it, but it says on day one, and there was morning and there was evening on the first day, and there was morning and there was evening on the second day, and so on for three, four, and five, and six. But it doesn't say that on the seventh day. It doesn't say there's morning and there's evening on the seventh day. And the reason for this is, remember, that was the day God blessed. That was the day we were supposed to be resting and he's, that was, it was a, remember, rest isn't, we're tired, we're taking a break, but it was an enjoyment of creation, that God had ceased from creating and now was enjoying his creation, and we were to join him in that rest as a continual state of being. We were to continually be in that place with him, that place of rest. <clears throat> so think through, God at the very beginning had an agenda, he had a plan, he's created this perfect world, right? This perfect world where everything is in harmony. Nature is in harmony with man. Man is in harmony with nature. The only people are in perfect harmony with one another. So human relationships are perfect. Their relationships with God are perfect. And the whole world is just saturated in harmony and love. And it's a perfect love, right? And it's God's goodness. And so as man enjoyed the work he was created for, as man enjoys the creation, then in turn, he takes that enjoyment and he praises the God who made it and gave it to him. It's the Westminster Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And enjoying what he gave us, we turn to him and give him glory. So God has been doing all of this to receive glory. And because of who God is, that is not a selfish or wrong thing to do. It's wrong when we do it, but when God does it, it's very right. And so as he enjoys creation, as we enjoy it, and we glorify him for it, we were to be in the state of perfect joy and rest with him on the seventh day. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say, and that was the end of the story, right? And we all lived happily ever after. 
So we know from today's lesson, that's not where we ended. So we're going to look today, two-point outline, but there are a lot of subpoints, so stay with me. There's a lot to cover today. We're going to look at Paradise Lost, a little nod to John Milton there, Paradise Lost, and then we're going to look at the promise of Paradise Regained. Paradise Lost and the promise of Paradise Regained. So turn with me to Genesis 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So we're going to see right now the first attack, right? The first attack on creation, this created order. And it starts with Satan attacking the created order and then questioning God's character. So first we see who's talking, right? We looked at this in the lesson. The serpent's talking. And who is he talking to? He's talking to Eve. We know from verse 6 who's with Eve. Adam. Who is Adam? Adam is the ruler over creation, but he's not addressing the ruler. So he's completely reversing what God said. A creature is trying to manipulate who's the one who's supposed to have rule over him. And that word crafty and the word naked, when it says Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, they're different words in Hebrew, but they sound exactly the same. So there's a play on words here where Satan is trying to manipulate their innocence. Satan is trying to manipulate their innocence so that if he can get Adam and Eve to follow him, follow the creature, which they're supposed to have dominion over, then he can overthrow God's plan. He can usurp God's authority and overthrow God. Now, we know that God can never be overthrown, but we've seen that that's Satan's agenda, right? That's what he tries to do in heaven. When he is a cherub, he tries to become God. That's what he's trying to do on earth. He is trying to overthrow God. Futile, but it is what he's trying to do. So he's trying to manipulate them, and He's attacking first the created order. But then he challenges God's character. He says, did God really say that you shouldn't? Did, is that really what God wanted? And how does Eve respond? She does two things. She says, God says we could eat of the trees in the garden, but that's not what God said. God said you could eat freely from the trees, right? If you go back to Genesis 2, you could eat freely. God is offering bounty to them. It's saying come to my house or, you know, you're the, have whatever you want. Have as much as you want. Get this if you want. You know, go through the... It's, it's bounty. It is this generous, generous offering to partake to the fullest extent you want. And she reduces it to, we can eat. So she takes away from God's word. Then, what does she add to God's word? We saw this. Did God say you couldn't touch the tree? No. No, God didn't say that. Now, again... They're still in a state of innocence. The command, disobeying, is eating from the tree. If the story ended here, and, and theologians debate this, but if the story ended here, it doesn't say their eyes are open and the world has fallen yet. He's manipulating them. She's not, but she doesn't have the fallen nature to have the same tendencies that we would do if we were doing this. But it's not, it's, it's, it's anatomy of the fall. It's, a, it's how it's, she's going to fall. So we see his attack on God's character. That, did God really say this? And then... He, he says again, you're not, he says, God's a liar. You're not surely going to die, right? Just calls God a liar. But then he does say something that has truth to it. So Satan is always mixing truth and lies. And that is the best lie. The best lie will have truth in it. 
right? Because if there's something you can say, well, th if this is true, then that's probably true too. And so the best way to deceive someone is to have partial truth. So Satan comes in there and says, oh, you're not going to die and calls God's a liar. But he says, but you'll, you'll be like God. But what should Adam, and he's, he's so crafty here, because what should Adam and Eve have realized? In whose image are they made? They are already like God. They are in the image of God. One of my professors, or a professor at the university I went to, says th this way, if I say to you, you are the image of your parents, or I say you're like your parents, which one's greater? Which one means you're more like them? The image of. When I say you're in the image of this, that is much stronger than saying you're like them. So they will be like God, but it's actually a lesser state than what they already have. It's actually less than what they've already been given. And they're probably thinking, you know, that obviously they weren't God. They weren't perfectly in every way what God was. So maybe they were thinking they would be all-powerful like God. But they're just going to be like him in a lesser way. So Satan is mixing this all up. And so what does Eve do? We see in verse 6, right? She looks at the tree and she sees it is good for food and delight to the eye. And it was desire to make one wise, right? So she's looking at this. She's considering the temptation. So let's think about this tree. Was this magic fruit? If you, was this, did the fruit impart, the, did eating it impart the knowledge of good and evil? No. What is the tree standing for? In his book, God's Big Picture, Robert Vaughn has had a, an excellent description of this. I'm going to read it to you. He says, the knowledge of good and evil wasn't just knowing right from wrong, but deciding right from wrong. Their sin was not that just of law-breaking, but of law-making. They were saying, from now on, we want to be the lawmakers in the world, setting the standards by which we will live. It was a bid to be like God, but not in any noble sense. They were usurping his authority and establishing their independence. And that has been the nature of sin ever since. When God established the command, we've already said it, he's establishing his authority that God determines what is good and God determines what is evil and we submit to God. So the tree represented God's law and God's determination of good and evil and in eating of the free, they're saying, we want to be God. We want to make the laws. We want to determine good and evil. Does this sound like a book in the Bible where, of Judges, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, right? It's the nature of sin ever since. So we see that Eve eats, right? And who's with her? Read with me in the end of verse 6. She ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves long clothes. So they eat, loincloths, excuse me, they eat and their eyes are opened. The fall has happened. A professor I had in Israel says the man and woman both fell because sorry, both fall because they want more than what God has given them, and they are not content with His provision, and they effectively question His goodness. The man and the woman both fall because they want more than what God has given them. They are not content with His provision, and they effectively question His goodness. They are not thankful and content with the perfect world. Right? There is nothing that could be better in their life and they needed more, okay? And so now we're going to see the fall and the image of God. We are all still created in the image of God, but it's tarnished. Now the image of God is in sinful, fallen human beings that are broken. And just listen and note as we go through the rest of the, lecture, the, rest of the lecture and as you do the lesson, note the broken relationships between man and his wife, between God and men, between man and creation. It's the death of joy, of human ability, and there's no way they can fix it right? I mean, here they are, 
the whole world's collapsed because as the king goes, remember corporate solidarity, when Adam eats, Eve eats, their eyes are open. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. So here they are trying to sow some leaves together, and what happens? Who do they hear? Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. This is a frantic, desperate hiding. Okay, this is the, the, the word, I mean, they are desperately trying to hide from God. Absolutely terrified. Before, it was a joy to be with him. Now, he can judge them, and they want to be far, far away from them. And again, it just shows what sin has done, because why is God coming? God is coming to pursue them, to save them. We see that in Genesis 3.15. He is coming to pursue them, to save them, to restore them, to stop the serpent. His coming is so, so merciful and loving, and they are hiding, and they are terrified, which they sinned. There should be a fear of God, but um, God is coming to pursue them. I learned this week that this phrase, the cool of the day, can actually mean the storm of the day. And it, it's a storm like thunderstorm or hurricane. So we're really familiar here with thunderstorms, aren't we? And all that happens with, I love it. I always get on the porch and watch the lightning, and I think it's really neat. But they're dangerous, right? You know, lightning is dangerous. And those, those big thunderstorms, you don't just, like, stand in an open field and go, here I am. <laughs> like, that's dangerous. And so there's this sense of God is coming, and he's coming to save, but God is angry at the sin. God is angry at the rebellion. Well, we see right away, God finds them. You know, he knew where they were, right? But he, he calls to them. He has them come. And he says, where are you? We're in verse 10 here. And he said, I heard the sound of, the, um, the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So right away, who's Adam blaming? He's blaming Eve, but who's he really blaming? The woman that you gave me. Whose fault is it that Adam ate? It's God's fault. God gave me this woman. So not personal responsibility, not confession, but God is being blamed. Again, because the consequences, the brokenness becomes so clear. Then God asks Eve, what happened? And she states the facts, but not in a repentant way, right? Just, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Not, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I, just, this happened. And then God turns to the serpent. And this is where we come to our second point. We've looked at the fall. We looked at paradise lost. And now we're going to look at the promise of paradise regained, which is really clear in verse 15. So God says, we're in verse 14 now, to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Satan tried to counter God. He tried to come in and attack the created order and attack God's character and usurp creation. And now God is coming to the serpent. And on every front that Satan attacked him, he's going to address every single one and say, where you thought you'd have victory, I'm going to have victory. I'm going to win. God is going to win. Satan is going to lose. And he starts with the woman and, and the serpent. So the serpent is cursed. The serpent, obviously, right, was involved by, by Satan. Satan was the one doing this. But somehow in a way I do not understand, the serpent was complicit in being allowed, in allowing the, I guess, in dwelling. I don't know, but the serpent now is dealt with. The creature that sinned is dealt with, and now we're going to address the enmity between them. You try to manipulate the woman. You try to have the creation fall through her. I'm going to put enmity between you. 
So we look and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So this word enmity is like magnets. You know, magnets can obviously attract to each other, but they can also repel each other, right? And that you've seen that when they have actually that force where you can't get them to come together because it's not the right magnetism. And that's what this enmity is. They're actually, it's a repulsion. It's a pushing away. The serpent is never going to be able to come to the woman and manipulate her like this again because of this enmity. And then he says, it's not just going to be between Eve and Satan. It's going to be between their offspring, right? And uh, so often translations would even say seed, right? This is between the woman's seed and between the serpent's seed. So what does that term seed mean? And this is another one that you need to like star or highlight that we're going to have to look at throughout all of um, the, our Bible study. Seed is going to be a really critical thing to understand. So seed has both a plural and a singular meaning. I could say, I put seed in my garden. And you don't think I took a seed and dropped it, and I'm going to have one thing grow. You know that I planted many seeds. Or you could refer to a seed that is one. So here we look at the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Sorry, I'm just making sure I'm doing it in the right order. Put M between, so th- the serpent. So the offspring of the serpent is not baby snakes, okay? We don't have enmity with snakes. We have enmity. It's a spiritual being that fought against Eve, and it's his spiritual descendants. So God is making clear that now there is this spiritual war that is going to go on, and there are going to be those who align with the serpent, who align with Satan, and they are the spiritual seed of the serpent. And in the modern in, in the current day we live in, I think it's hard in the present, t- whenever the present is, to know who um, is the seed of the serpent. Because we don't judge men's heart, and we want to see, we pray that they repent. But you can look back in history and see people who were the seed of the serpent. Pharaoh, trying to wipe out the nation of Israel, trying to kill all the baby boys, right? You see it in Herod, trying specifically to kill the promised Messiah by killing all the boys under two. You see it when John the Baptist says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. You're of your father, the devil. You know, you are, he's calling them serpents, which everyone would have known is calling you seeds of the serpent. So it's those who, not just in the sense that unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins, this is a different degree of a specific way of trying to wipe out and take out, we're going to really see in the Old Testament, Israel, because Israel is going to be the vehicle through which God is going to spread his truth. And then there's the offspring of the woman. Okay, so the offspring of the woman, everyone who descends from, is alive, descended from Adam and Eve. But again, there's a spiritual sense here of the, the remnant that God provides. There has never been a day in history when there wasn't a believing remnant. No matter how bad history has been, no matter how dark, no matter how great the persecution, God has always preserved people who believe in him and follow him. The believing remnant, the offspring of the woman. He's always preserved it. There's not been a day where there hasn't been someone that is of the offspring of Eve. So we see the spiritual cosmic battle set up, and then we're going to look at the singular. Then all of a sudden it says, and he shall bruise your head, right? And someone says crush. He shall crush your head. So we've gone from the plural seed to a specific descendant. He. He is going to crush your head. Remember we talked about corporate solidarity? We all fell in Adam, and now our hope is all in this serpent crusher, in this one who's going to defeat Satan. And in defeating Satan and supplied, regain paradise. Regain what was lost. Fix the problem. It's also implied 
that if Satan is a supernatural being, can a human defeat him? No. So there's an implication, though it is not explicit here, that this he will be also a supernatural being. But really what is very clear is that he's going to be the second Adam. The only he that exists right now is Adam. There's going to be another he. There's going to be another descendant. And where Adam failed, he will succeed. He will be the true image of God, and he will crush the serpent. So God takes the very thing that Satan was hoping to use to overthrow God, man and woman, right, manipulating them, and he's going to use them to destroy and crush the serpent. But it's not without a cost, because what does the serpent do? The serpent shall bruise his heel. Crushing the serpent, it's irrecoverable. It is destruction. Satan is going to be destroyed with no chance of forgiveness. But the serpent, he will bruise. It's recoverable, (laughs) but this is not a victory without a cost. And we see the foreshadowing of sacrifice, the foreshadowing of a theology of sacrifice. So the consequences of sin are going to begin in the next chapter, but we see that there's hope. People call this the first gospel. Everything has fallen apart. The kingdom is destroyed. Complete rebellion against God, but he says what? I'm going to wipe you all out? No. I'm going to send a serpent crusher, and he will restore paradise. But that doesn't erase the consequences. It doesn't take away the fall. So we continue on. And he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Another way you could translate this verse instead of childbearing is conception. And so you could say, I will cause you pain in conception, and I will multiply your conception. So what we're going to see is there's going to be a consequence But even in the consequences, we're going to see the implementation of the promise of Genesis 3.15. Because though something that was supposed to be completely joyous is now mixed with pain, it wasn't supposed to be painful, it wasn't supposed to be hard, but that's what we're going to have in all of life now, joy mixed with pain. There's a promise that just even though conception will be hard, you will conceive. I will multiply your conception. There will be descendants. Because if there weren't, there's no serpent crusher. But there will be descendants. There will be one who comes. And then we just see, and theologians are in lots of places about what it means that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. But what we see is, is it what it should be? No. Do Adam and Eve have the relationship they should have? No. Some think it means she'll really love him and he will rule over her with an iron fist. Some think it means she'll want to rule over him. And I didn't go into a deep study about it because the point for what we're looking at is their relationship's broken, right? The sin has broken how it's supposed to be. And now it's going to be a struggle. And to Adam, and he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall, which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust and to dust, you shall return. So that doesn't sound very hopeful, right? (laughs) Life's going to be really, really hard. And then you die. But there is hope in it, right? Because what if Adam couldn't die? If Adam can't die, there is no sacrifice for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. If Adam can't die, the Savior can't die. We can't be redeemed, right? So even death is a mercy. If Adam had somehow, remember, and that's what happens right next, because what does God do? He says, we don't want them to eat from the tree of life. Get out of the garden puts a cherub there because he wants to make sure that they can be redeemed. That they die, they return to the dust because if man can't die, then Jesus can't die. And so there's hope 
in the fact that we can die. I'm not trying to take away the consequence that sin, that death is from sin, that death was not the original plan, but just God's mercy even in it, okay? His mercy even in that. Because of that, we can be redeemed. There can be a sacrifice for sin. And remember that, that um, corporate solidarity. Just as we all fall in Adam, all who trust in Christ can be covered by his blood. Okay, so it's not universalism. Everyone's not going to get saved because there's a serpent crusher. You have to trust in him. But all that trust in him, that corporate solidarity, what happens to him happens to them. So, then what happens? Verse 26. The man called his wife. We've been calling her Eve the whole time because we know. But up until now, scriptures called her the woman. Okay? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So it's the first death, right? Death has to, to cover them. But in calling her Eve, in naming her the mother of all living, Adam is believing in God's promise, right? He's saying the serpent crush will come because you're going to have children just like God said. And he's now coming around to faith and faith in the promise, right? Faith and trust in the promise. So... As we leave this chapter and we move on, what, how does it change our lives? What application does it have for us? The first thing that came to my mind is where do we challenge and doubt God's word, right? That was the first attack that Satan used. Where do we challenge and doubt, doubt God's word? Take time to write down one or two ways, like think about that and then what are one or two ways that you want to make changes in that, that you want to fight against it? Write those down. Right, one, you know, so I, I see that I doubt God's word. I don't think that he's really good, and so I don't really trust him. How am I going to combat that? Write one or two steps, you're going to do it. I'm going to memorize verses on, um, on trusting God. I'm going to have someone hold me accountable. I'm going to read a book on trusting God so I understand it better. It's, a, it's an issue I don't know. What practical steps are you going to take to do, to, to not challenge God's word, to not doubt him, and to grow? Another practical application is that in Christ, remember the image of God has been tarnished, but in Christ we see that he is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And a few verses before that in Colossians 1.10, it says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And I keep mentioning this professor that I learned so much from him, Abner Chow, but he says, and he pointed out, and as soon as he said it, I'm like, oh, I see it, but I wouldn't have seen it on my own. Bearing fruit and increasing, what does that sound like? Be fruitful and multiply. So Christ is the image of God, and we are to walk in a manner worthy of him, pleasing him, bearing fruit, being fruitful and multiplying. And then Abner says, when we grow in the gospel and pleasing God more, we are going back to our purpose in creation. The more like Christ we become, the more fulfilled we are because that is what we were created to be. So this week, what practical steps can we take to be more like Christ? Because the more like Christ we are, the more in his image we are, the closer to what we were created to be, and the more fulfilled we are. How can you be more like Christ this week? What do you put off? What do you put on? Maybe that's where you can start your small groups next week. What steps did you take, ladies? And... Do you have hope? Adam ended with the hope that Eve was going to, the serpent crusher was coming. And even though we know the Messiah came, he's coming again. Is that what we hope in? 
Is that what we're excited about? Is that what we're looking forward to? Are we living in the expectation and hope of the promises of God being fulfilled? I know, and I'm convicted. At, and my husband's like, you should, he was actually saying, you know, you should probably add that as an application when I was practicing it with him. And all I could think is I'm so convicted because I get distracted. I know that between now and when I teach this again tonight, <laughs> I'm going to go pick up my kids from school, and I'm going to be distracted. And it's not going to be what I think about. This week, I had a close friend's father die. There was a horrible scandal that happened with a ministry I've been involved in, well, accusing of a scandal. That's not true, but it's defaming people I love about. I've had health issues. I've had, um, I, I made a quick list of it. I don't remember it. Okay, though, and, and I know that my life is normal. I know every single one of you could give me your list. I know it's not unique. I know it doesn't, it's not special, but those things, the cares of the world, right, they drown this out in our life. They crush, they, they crowd it out. They can make you so distracted from what really matters. And I am so guilty of it. So how do we this week focus on our hope? One way we can do it is we can all talk to each other about it. We've all heard about it. We've all studied it together. We have prayer partners. We can make sure it's something we mention to each other that we encourage each other in. So... Um, and we can be praying for those cares and to, to be focused on what matters. Thank you for your time. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for each of these women. I thank you that you are a God of hope, a God of redemption, a God of salvation, and a God who treats us infinitely better than we deserve to be treated because of who you are so that you will receive the glory. We love you, Lord. We ask that this week you'd help us to focus on our hope. You'd help us to be more and more conformed to the image of your son, to make practical steps in our life to do that, that we would more fully enjoy you and more fully enjoy what you have created us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.